I'd like to direct your attention to Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That question there is jarring, I think, in that particular context. And I think sometimes when we read that passage of Scripture, we just sort of read the parallel and think, well, that question there doesn't seem to be relevant at all and just sort of pass over it. I think it's the key to understanding it. And what a startling question it is. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I think it would be true to say that if we read this particular parable casually, we are in danger of getting hold of the wrong end of the stick big time. Here's the story. There was a judge, not a judge wearing a a black robe sitting in an oak paneled courtroom in a beautiful courthouse with a dome in the center of the county town. Rather, he is traveling probably from village to village, town to town with a portable tent that he erects and he sits there and the villagers come to him when he's in town and they bring all their petty arguments and all their petty squabbles. They bring all the details of the deals that have gone sour and all the family disputes and it's a bit chaotic and all the villagers gather around and the tent is open and people come and go through the whole thing. On this particular situation is exacerbated by the fact that we're told that this judge was a most unsavory character. Two things we know about him. Number one, he didn't fear God. And number two, he didn't care about people. So the question is, why is he a judge? If a judge doesn't fear God, then he does not believe that he himself has a judge and that he is ultimately accountable. And if a judge doesn't care about people, he will not care two hoots whether justice is done at all. And we ask ourselves the question, if he doesn't judge with a sense of ultimate accountability, and he doesn't judge on the basis of genuinely caring for people, why is he a judge? And it would seem to me the only answer to that is, he's on the take, this guy. He is an unsavory character. Whilst he's going about his business, maybe even taking bribes, doing what he can on the situation, 
on this particular occasion, according to the story of Jesus, there's a certain woman who keeps coming around the place. She stands at the entrance to the tent and all, all the people. And while the judge is doing his business, she yells and shouts and screams at him, somebody do something for me. Somebody give me justice. Judge, you have got to handle my situation. And day after day she comes and day after day he orders the bailiffs or the equivalents to get this woman out of here. I don't want to hear her. I don't want to see her. I don't want to do anything for her at all. Three strikes against her this woman had. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a widow. Three, she can't hire somebody to be an advocate for her, so she's poor. And when you're a woman and a widow and poor in that culture, you don't rate. And that is the situation. But she keeps coming and she keeps yelling and screaming and interrupting the proceedings till in the end, the judge says, I've got to do something about this. Not out of concern for her, purely out of concern for himself. Literally what he says, and this is not translated in the NIV, literally what he says is if she keeps coming and I do nothing, she's going to give me a black eye. <laughs> that doesn't mean she's going to take a swing at him with her purse. What it means is I'm going to finish up with egg on my face. He doesn't have much of a reputation, but what he does have will be in shreds and tatters if word gets around that this woman kept after him and he did absolutely nothing about it. So this is the story that Jesus tells. I think it shows his quirky humor because he goes on to say, to make this surprising application, will not your heavenly father, will not your heavenly father hear what you have to say and grant you what you request. Now, a casual reading of that story would lead you to think something like this, I suspect. Oh, okay. God isn't particularly interested in what I say. He's not particularly concerned in my situation. He doesn't really want to be bothered with my prayers. He doesn't want to answer me at all. He never does. But I guess if I bug him long enough, if I pester him long enough, in the end he's going to say, get that woman out of my hair. All right, I'll give you what you want. Now let me ask you a question. Is that your view of God? Is, is that your approach to prayer? Well, nobody's going to say, oh yeah, I think God's like that and that's my approach to prayer. Well then, what do you make of this story? It's in the book, as they say. What do we make of it? I think that is not the way to look at it. The question to ask, of course, when you're reading a parable is what's the point? A parable will have a point and you've got to look for the point and it's dead easy on this one because we're told right at the beginning what the point is. He told a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now question, always pray and not give up, does that mean that you should never give up praying? Or, in other words, is the parable basically about praying? The alternative is this. Are there two things here? He told this parable so that men should always pray and not give up. Is this parable primarily not about praying, but primarily about persevering? Don't give up. And does praying have something to do in helping you not to give up? 
And I believe it is the second interpretation that is correct. Now that's, that's a very definite statement. I need to substantiate it for you. Always remember that you interpret a passage of scripture in its context, for I think you may have heard this principle that if you take a text out of its context, you're left with a can't. That's right. And the context of Luke 18, obviously, is Luke 17. It comes out of Luke 17. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said about the coming of Messiah, we have a question. When will he come? They got an ambiguous answer. Jesus takes his disciples on one side and he doesn't clarify the issue anymore. But what he tells them is this. Before Messiah comes again, because he, of course, had already come, before Messiah returns, you must understand this, that there will be times of great tension and great tribulation that my disciples will go through. That's basically what chapter 17 is about. Then immediately the parable is told, all right? This parable is told so that men will always pray and not give up. Notice the context. The context is that the disciples are living between the two comings of Christ, the first coming and the second coming. And that in between the first coming and the second coming, there is a period of time, there is a certain era in which they will live, in which you and I, incidentally, now live. It has gone on now, of of course, for, for over 20 centuries. But the period is very straightforward. It is characterized by the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Disciples living in the world today live in the good of the first coming, and the hope of the second coming. We look back to all that we have because he came. We look forward to all that we will have because he will come. Those are the poles of our faith. But in the interim, we were told that there would be times of trouble, tribulation, etc., etc., or characterized by what Jesus tells in the parable injustice. Now, everybody has a sense of justice. Everybody has a sense of what is fair. Everybody has a sense of what is right. So if, if everybody has this sense of what is fair and what is right, it's easy to see that in this world of ours, there are many things that are not fair and there are many things that are not right. In fact, in my advanced years, I have given up on something that I've enjoyed immensely for many years. I've given up on arguing. Now, that's a very strange thing for a British person to do, but I have given up. And there are two very good reasons for it. Number one, if you have an argument and win it, the person that you defeat by winning it feels embarrassed and stays out of your way in future. If you lose it, the person to whom you lose says you are a total dummy and they stay out of your orbit because they don't want anything to do with you. So you may win an argument and lose a friend. So I have decided I won't get into all that stuff. I will look for points of agreement and I found one. On all seven continents, I have as yet not found a single person who disagrees with this point of agreement. And the point of agreement is this. Things are not the way they ought to be. 
Things are not the way they ought to be. There is something fundamentally unfair. There's something fundamentally not right. There is something fundamentally unjust about this world. And that is how it is. It's the consequences of the fall from a theological point of view. And that is where we live. Now, the disciples of Jesus are called to live in between the two comings in a situation that is far from ideal. Because we live in a situation that is far from ideal, guess what? There is a tendency sometimes to be more affected by the less than ideal situation in which we're living our discipleship. And there is always a tendency to give up on our discipleship to such an extent that it is necessary for the question to be asked, will so many people give up because it's so hard and such a struggle that when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith? on the earth that's the point of the parable now what's this giving up thing what is meant by this the word that is used in this particular parable has an etymological root that is interesting now I understand that we can go too far studying the etymology of the word and arrive at the wrong answers but there's a connotation here that's important the etymological root of this word give up is the word for bad or evil. And the idea of giving up, I think, is this. That there is a tendency for us at times to move from where we ought to be to something inferior. To settle for something that is less than right and good and true. To slip and slide into a deteriorating, disintegrating position, even in the name of wanting to be right and do right, to finish up fundamentally being so infected by the arena and the era of which we're a part that we find ourselves conforming to it, giving up, giving Paul gives us one or two illustrations of this. I'll just give you a couple. Second Corinthians chapter four, he is talking about the particular problems he has in the church at Corinth. Some people have come in after Paul has ministered there. They are getting into character assassination. They are doing this in order to discredit Paul with a view to discrediting his teaching and his gospel, with a view to discrediting his ministry, with a view to undoing all that he's done and taking it over themselves. And he is having a tremendous struggle with these people. And that's what the correspondence of Second Corinthians is all about. And it's very, very interesting to notice that he charges these people with giving up on principle. And he says that himself, we will not give up. We will not give up. And on that particular context, he is talking about the possibility of giving up on principle. Giving up on principle. Is that possible for a disciple? Is it possible for a disciple of Jesus living between the two comings 
to live in a situation that is far from ideal and find it such a struggle in that situation that is far from ideal that they give up on principle. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for teenagers in high school or slightly older in college and university to notice the fact that the majority of people are cheating and that because the people are cheating, if they're going to keep up with them, if they're going to compete, they really have no alternative but to cheat themselves because everybody's doing it. Is it possible that a disciple of Jesus could actually find himself just giving up on principle and settling for something less? And you know the answer to that. Is it possible in the business world where lying is rampant for a Christian disciple to decide if I tell the truth in a situation where everybody else lies, there's no way I can survive. There's no way I can make a living. A fellow came to me one day and said to you, quite frankly, I have to resign my job if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus because the business I'm in, you can't be honest and make a living in it. And he was a very successful man in his area of responsibility. Is it possible for a disciple of Jesus to be living in a situation committed to Jesus and his principles, but to find such an erosion of principle that in the end they just give up? And the answer is yes. Is it possible for young couples who are looking around them and they see that their parents struggled in marriage, they say to themselves, you know, we're not sure we want to commit to marriage. And lots and lots of people have decided the sensible thing to do is live together before we get married. So that's what we'll do. We know it's not the way Christians should do it, but everybody's doing it and lots of folks are doing it. And so they give up on principle. And the question that you have to ask is this, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Will he find people just giving up on principle? Will will he find people just giving up on discipleship? Will he find people giving up on taking a stand? Well, there are other illustrations. I don't have time to get into them right now. But you get the picture, don't you? Now, the parable is told for this express purpose. Given the situation in which disciples are called to live before the coming of Jesus, is it possible that the struggle could be difficult? Is it possible that people will give up? I told you that Jesus gave ambiguous answers about his return. What he did tell them was this. He said, you can be absolutely certain of this. I will come again. You can be absolutely certain of this. But I'll also tell you this, you won't know when and you won't know where. So this is what I call the uncertain certainty. And this uncertain certainty is the arena in which we live. What we are told is that the coming of Jesus will be cataclysmic, that it will be sudden, that it will take people totally by surprise, that it will be irresistible, And it will be irreversible and it will be irrefutable. That people will be ushered into their eternal destiny, some to eternal blessing, some to eternal condemnation. And it will happen and we are not told when and we are not told where and we are simply told it will be sudden and cataclysmic. And it hasn't 
happened for 20 centuries. And so some people have not only given up because of the struggle of living in an arena and an era that is not conducive to discipleship, but others have given up because they're not even sure if it's going to happen any more. Peter, in his second epistle, wrote about this. <laughs> it's really very surprising. He, he said... You know, there are scoffers abounding right now. This is 20 centuries ago, folks. 20 centuries ago, Peter wrote about this. And he said, there are scoffers around and they are scoffing about this idea of Christ coming again. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the creation, things continue as they always did. Have you you, uh, noticed quite a lot of people never talk about the coming of Christ? Have you noticed that there are a lot of Christians who never refer to the fact that the second pole of their spiritual lives is that they look back to the fact that he has come and they look forward to the fact that he will return. Have you come across any Christians who don't really want to think about it? Could it be that a lot of people have actually given up on believing that he will return and that they should be ready? that it will be cataclysmic, that it will be sudden, and that we are to be found actively on the job. This is why the parable has been told. Which raises a question, of course. If it is true that we should not give up, (laughs) then how do we go about it? Eight miles from the centre of the great metropolis of London is a quaint little historic village called Harrow-on-the-Hill. Harrow-on-the-Hill is the site of many historic places of interest, including the famous elite boys' school, simply called Harrow School. Very elite, very expensive, very quaint, very historic. No fewer than seven British prime ministers were educated there, including Sir Winston Churchill. So Winston Churchill loved Harrow School, not when he was there, but after he'd left. And one of the things he particularly loved about Harrow School was what is known as the Harrow Song Book. It is a book of more than 50 songs written by teachers of Harrow School, words and lyrics. And there's a tremendous emphasis at Harrow on musical education. So all the boys are required to learn instruments and they are required to engage in choral singing. And there are times when the whole of the school is brought together and they sing out of the Harrow songbook. On the 29th of October 1941, in the dark, dismal, dreary, dangerous days of the Second World War, when England was facing a very, very uncertain future with the Nazi armies just a few miles away on the coastline of France. Winston Churchill went to an event at Harrow School that he dearly loved. It was the evening when the school sang the Harrow songs, some of which had been written specially for him. And on this particular occasion, he went, and as they were singing the patriotic songs particularly, the old man was sitting there with tears streaming down his face. And then he was asked to speak to the boys. 
Now remember that he is the prime minister of the United Kingdom at this time. That he is the old lion who is standing up to what he called that jackal Mussolini and that crazy madman painter from Austria, Adolf Hitler. And he made his way to the podium and he spoke for four minutes and 12 seconds. This is his most oft-quoted speech because it is most often misquoted. Some people say he only got up and said three things and sat down. That's not quite right. He said a few more. But towards the end of his speech, this is what he said. Now remember the days. Remember who's speaking. Remember where he's saying it. This is what he said. Never give up. Never give up. Never, 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 in nothing great or small, small, large or petty, never give up. Can you imagine in those days listening to that man speak? Can you imagine how those young boys must have felt the hair on the back of the necks rising? They are hearing the most stirring rhetoric. They're hearing the greatest challenge. Never give up because they are looking at an old man who doesn't have an ounce of give up in him. And he's making a nation discover they don't have an ounce of give up in them either. And that's what the church of Jesus needs today. Never give up. Never give up. Never, 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 never in matters large or small. Never give up. Oh, I know his coming has been delayed. I know the era in which we live is fraught with difficulties. I know there's a tendency to give up on principle. I know there's a tendency to cut corners. I know there's a possibility of losing focus and becoming weary in intensity and just deciding you've done your bit and let somebody else do it anymore. But the message is very, very straightforward and clear. Jesus told the parable and he said, men ought always to pray and never give up and the key is praying the key is praying now Jesus in this parable that he's telling is not giving us a picture of God he's giving us a caricature of the opposite of God is God the unjust God who can't be bothered with us and only answers us and gives us what we want because we bug him to death and try his patience? Of course not. What is God like? He is our loving heavenly father. And like a father, if we come to him as a boy and ask for a fish, he won't give us a serpent. And if we ask for bread, he won't give us a stone. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need and he has promised. He has promised to hear the cries of his servants, his chosen ones, his disciples living in difficult days where there's erosion of their faith. He has promised to hear them. And are we like the widow who is poor and impoverished and totally without resources? Of course not. We have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And are we like her without an advocate? Of course not. 
The risen Christ is at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. So why would there be an ounce of give up in us? For the Father knows what we need and he is totally committed in the end to bringing justice to bear. Which means that this crazy old world that is not the way it ought to be one day will be the way it ought to be when Christ returns and that is the polarity that we look to. That is the objective that we have. We are living in the light of his irreversible irrefutable, irresistible return. But we forget. We cut corners. We give up. Instead of praying. I'll give you a case study. Acts chapter 3 following. Peter and John heal a man. The people gather around and say, oh, how did you do that? He said, I did it in the power of Jesus of Nazareth, who was risen from the dead. Oh, tell us more. So he preaches the resurrection. It's in Jerusalem. It's not long after the resurrection. And the authorities are frightened to death that this message is getting out there. And so they grab Peter and John like the unjust judge and they throw them in jail without a charge or without a trial. Next morning, they're brought out put in front of the Sanhedrin, who questioned them. How did you do this miracle? Simon Peter, totally unabashed by the whole situation, said, uh, we, we did it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who if you may remember a few weeks ago you crucified, uh, but God raised him from the dead. And the people said, what, what an incredible statement from this young man. How in the world dare he talk to us like that? He's uneducated, he's unpolished, uh, he, he is uncouth. And somebody said, yes, but he's been with Jesus. And it sort of rubbed off on him. Incidentally, we are spending much of our lives in the developing world among the uneducated, the untrained, the unpolished, the uncouth, who've been with Jesus. And they're dynamite. They're dynamite. And that's where the church is growing most rapidly in the world today. And so the people tried to shut up Peter and they say, you must not speak in this name of Jesus who you say rose again from the dead. And Peter said, that raises something of a problem, sir, uh, because God has told us that we should and you've told us that we shouldn't. Now we, we have a question for you. You're the Sanhedrin. Ought we to obey God or man? <laughs> and he neatly put the Sanhedrin over a barrel because everybody knows you obey God rather than man. So they could do nothing but bluster and threaten them. And say, don't speak in his name again. And they kicked them out. So Peter and John go back to their believing community and they pray. Of course they do. They don't give up. They pray. And notice how they pray. It's wonderful. Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. It's who you pray to that matters. Sovereign Lord. You who made the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea and all that is within them. 
You are the one who spoke by your servant David. And here they quote Psalm 2 that talks about the rulers rising up against the Lord's anointed. And they make application of it in their prayer. And they said, the rulers around here, Lord, rose up against your servant Jesus and they killed him. But you did have your determinate foreknowledge and counsel in this thing. And you were actually in control when they put Jesus to death and you raised him from the dead. Now that's who you pray to. You pray to the sovereign Lord who is the creator of heaven and earth, the land and the sea and all that is in them who raised up Jesus from the dead and who works out all things according to his determinate foreknowledge and counsel and eternal purposes. That's who you pray to. And then this is what they prayed. Now behold their threatenings. It's very difficult down here, Lord. Don't know if you've noticed. Keep an eye on this situation. And would you please get us out of here as quickly as possible? No, they didn't. They said, behold their threatenings and please embolden your servants so that we may speak your word faithfully. Because they didn't have an ounce of give up in them. They prayed which is precisely what Jesus told them to do. Don't give up. Pray. And not surprisingly, the place was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and off they went. And immediately, I love it, they got themselves thrown into jail again. God, however, had an angel who had graduated from picking locks school. And he went into the cell and he opened it and he got Simon out. And then, you know, I love the sense of humor here. He locked the cell behind him. And then Peter said, hey, now what do I do? You got me out of here. Now what do I do? And this angel said, there's a whole crowd of people at the temple and they want to hear more about Jesus. So Peter goes off and tells them. And then the next morning, the jailer sent by the Sanhedrin to get Peter out of jail <laughs> has a bit of a problem because he unlocks the cell and there he is, gone. And the cell was locked. So he comes back to the Sanhedrin and he says, Sir, I'm not quite sure how to explain this, but I put him in the cell and I locked it and I went down there this morning and I unlocked it and there he was, gone. And it was locked. And I'm not quite sure how to explain it but I'll attend to my resignation if you wish and somebody said well where is this man and somebody else said he's at the temple court uh, preaching of course he was of course he was there wasn't any give in him so they hold him in and they beat him up they beat him up this time and he goes out from his beating up and he says praise God that I was worthy to suffer for his sake Men ought always to pray and not give up. The problem with the contemporary church is this, far too easily we forget to pray and far too quickly we give up. And that's why the question is asked, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Very, very searching 
questions indeed. Remember, we are not a poor widow with no resources and no advocate. And God is not an unjust God who doesn't care about man. We are unbelievably rich in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father. And we have a Father who is totally committed to putting things to right, ultimately, finally, when Christ returns in glory. And that is the orientation that we have. And in the light of that, we live in the power of the resurrection. And we always pray. And we never, 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 never give up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, behold the situation in which we find ourselves. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen people. We have created fallen cultures and fallen societies. And the opportunities to go wrong are legion. The opportunities to be less than we ought to be abound on every hand. Everybody's doing it. And we can fit very conveniently into the scene and lose our distinctive as those set apart by you for yourself. Lord, you have given us all the resources that we need to live wisely and well in less than ideal circumstances. But unfortunately, we forget who we are and we forget who you are. And we forget the access that we have. And we simply take the easier route. And we give up. So please behold our situation. And empower us and ennoble us. And grant us the desire and the will and the ability to live as we ought in a scene that is far from ideal. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for the sake of your glory and because we want to be agents of change in this world so that Jesus can return and establish his kingdom. And we don't want to be people who simply slip, slide into the culture and become part of it except for an hour on Sunday. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, our advocate with the Father, our triumphant risen Lord. Amen.